Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, for this morning. Thank you, Father, for the wonderful weather, the clear skies, the dry roads. But, Father, we also thank you for the the rain that we needed, that you blessed us with that as well. And thank you, Father, that we have uh, many here this morning, many in spirit as well as in number, many, Father, by, by both their presence and by their prayers, supporting this fellowship and being a part of what you have to do here by your spirit. And thank you, Father, for the privilege to be a part of it. Father, we open your word now. Mindful of all that you put into it, all the time and effort through many lives and many generations, all the wisdom of of God himself prepared for us, Father, prepared for this day so that we might study and benefit from it, Father. But not by knowledge, not through a puffed up knowledge of what is in the book, Father, but really, Father, by the Holy Spirit's power, a greater knowledge of what is in us, that is, our sin and our need for Christ the power that the Holy Spirit has within us, Father, to draw us closer to You. Those are the things I hope to hear and see in the Word today, Father, for that is the reason we come to it, to be more like You. Father, do that work through Your Spirit today. And, uh, Father, give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, Peter continues on his theme here of living in a world as a foreigner. If you have your Bible, please open to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to finish chapter 2 today. And then actually go into chapter 3 for part of today. Let me just give you just a brief moment of recap. I want to help you understand where we've been going because we're diving basically back into the middle of a, of a discourse here. If you remember last week, we started looking at how as a foreigner, as a stranger in this world, we are to live in a way that honors authority. And by our willingness to honor and respect authority, we are... Uh, giving testimony to God and His power in this world. First, in the fact that He Himself selects the men who serve in government, we are told out of Scripture. So as we submit to government authorities, we are submitting to God Himself. Secondly, we studied, as Peter taught it last week, that we have obedience to authority in order to make it more likely that we will lead peaceful and tranquil lives. There's, There's hardly anything difficult in that point. The more you obey, the less trouble you get in. Third, and finally, we learned that when we obey authority, we possess a better witness for Christ's sake. For when we want to testify of our Lord, our testimony is far better if we come to somebody as a respecter of authority, as someone who is submitted to the authority over us, than we would if we come as a rebel, as someone who would try to thwart authority. These ideas will continue in today's lesson. But today, Peter's going to make a totally different application from what he has been making up to this point. Today, he's going to start to talk about three walks of life that all of us can relate to. Whether you're a child, whether you're an adult, whether you're married, whether you're single, regardless of your particular state in life, you will find application in these three examples today. The three examples we're going to study today, as they relate to our submitting to authority as an obedient servant of Christ, they are first as servants which as we study today, you'll see, really relates to our role in various walks of life, either as an employee or, as in Peter's say, as a slave, literally. It could also be in other contexts, which we'll talk about. So first, servants. Secondly, as wives. And then thirdly, as husbands. And I also have a rule whenever I talk about wives and husbands in any context from Scripture. It's called the no-elbow rule. You know what I'm referring to? So as I start going through the wife section, for example, husbands, you are not allowed to do this at points along the way. And then as we get to the husband section, wives, uh, go ahead and hit your husband a few times. That's perfectly reasonable. 
We are foreigners, and as Peter's already taught, we are to act as one who represents our home, the home country that we call our home, which is heaven. So as an ambassador of Christ here now, while we await that opportunity to return home, we are to maintain a certain lifestyle, a certain attitude, certain beliefs that reflect the home that we come from. Those principles, which we studied last week, haven't changed. They're just being applied now to new walks of life, to some additional examples. Let's go into the scripture where we left off last week. That would be at chapter 1, verse, or chapter 2, rather, verse 18, 1 Peter. Let's begin there. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience towards God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are treated harshly, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. When Peter says servants, he uses a very interesting word in the Greek. He uses a word oikites. It means house servant. What I want you to get a better understanding of what a house servant means or what a house servant was in his day. Because some of your translations may have used the word slave. Mind, as as you heard, used the word servant. Um, This was a person who served in the household of a master. This person often faced considerable difficulty within society. They had very little rights or very little authority. They had very few protections against a master who might abuse them. In fact, a master over a house servant had almost unchecked authority in that culture. These people usually had significant restrictions placed on their personal liberty. Many of these people would have put themselves into this position originally, but having gone into that position now, they had very little opportunity to leave. They they were basically committed for life to this position. There were some exceptions. There were some opportunities for them to leave that house of service, but not very many, and it would have been likely that most would have served out their life in this role as a house servant once they entered into it. You could legitimately call them slaves, Although the position of slave in the Greek culture in the day that Peter wrote this letter was more akin to indentured servant, as I said, less like the kind of slavery we are thinking of most of the time when we consider our own country's history with slavery, where men were put into that service against their will, they were uh, treated very, very badly, they, you know, they could be killed by the master. There was not quite that degree of oppression, but not much better. Not much better for these servants. Today, I think the closest parallels we would have in our experience, since obviously we don't have indentured servants, we don't have slavery, thankfully. The closest parallel we would have today, though, would be as an employee in any company. Maybe even better would be as a uh, military member, someone who's under the authority of an NCO or an officer. Here again, you voluntarily stepped into that role, but you can't exactly go home when you want to. Now, having understood that, look at what Peter says about servants. He says, the right behavior for a Christian servant was to be submissive and to be obedient. Do you remember the letter to Onesimus that Paul wrote? Here's a man in Onesimus who was a slave. He ran away from his master, which was against the law. He found himself in Rome. And while he was in Rome, he met Paul. And while he met Paul, he became a Christian. And now that he was a Christian, what did Paul teach him to do? Go back to your master which is a very challenging thing because it it really reflects the honesty with which Peter is writing this letter. That as a Christian, even as a slave, obey authority. 
as much as we may abhor the idea of slavery, and I don't think Paul endorsed it, he nevertheless recognizes that the witness of Onesimus was going to be better as an obedient slave than as a runaway slave. And here he gives some specific direction to to these servants. He says, you are to be good and faithful and, and obedient, not only to the good and gentle master, but also to those who are unreasonable. The word unreasonable in the Greek is skolios. Recognize the word? It's where we get skoliosis from. It literally means crooked or perverse or cruel. That's the sense of it here. He's saying, even if you've got a master that's cruel, submit to their authority. You see, if we only submit under circumstances which please us, is that honestly submission in any real sense of the word? You know, if you let me do what I want, if you're nice to me and confirm for me all the things I like, there's no submission required. So by definition, submission implies being asked to do things that I may not want to do or serve under circumstances that don't necessarily fit my desires to a master who may not be a kind man. That's the test of submission. That's the test for whether or not you're willing to submit. So he says, not only to those who are reasonable, but also to those who are unreasonable. Do you notice that that is a a biblical principle that stands 180 degrees opposite the world's perspective? The world says, be nice to those who are nice to us. And the world says, oppose those who oppose you. It's very, very easy to get angry and fight back against someone who has already taken the first blow, isn't it? If we take the first blow, we feel guilty. If they take the first blow, we feel in a right to respond. That's the way the world looks at things. What is the biblical rule? Peter's reflecting it here, but what is the biblical rule? Matthew 5, chapter 5, verse 43 is one place you can hear it. Christ says this. He says, You have heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. There's that world rule again. But Jesus goes on. He says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same thing? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same thing? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What is one definition of perfect? Loving your enemies instead of only loving your friends. Look again at Peter's comments in verse 20. Peter repeats this exact same lesson. Does he not? He says, if you submit to your boss, or let's say in our context today, that would be like our employer. If you submit to an employer only when they're doing what you want them to do, only when you're doing the kinds of, only when they're treating you well, what are you doing differently than the world does? It's the same rule Christ just gave. He says, submit to them even when they are treating us harshly. Now, I want to be clear. We're not talking here about carrying out their orders, whatever those orders might be, to the point of sin. For example, if a master of yours, a boss, in other words, were to say, go rob from that person or go murder somebody as an extreme example, that's not an order we can obey because it would put us in in violation of God's own law. So we understand there are boundaries to our behavior based on what God has given in his word. I'm not trying to change that, and neither is Peter, of course. But when we're told to work long, difficult hours, if we're told to work under difficult conditions or with inadequate pay, or if we're told to work uh, under the treatment of a harsh boss, we don't have any right to oppose that authority as I read Scripture. We can't turn around and say, you know what? I know I have this job. I know I agreed to do this work, but you're not treating me nicely. I'm out of here. I don't have to put up with this. 
I have a guy at work who used to say, I don't have to put up with this kind of treatment. I can go home to my wife. I'm not sure I understand what's going on in his home, but, but it's, again, it's in that moment that we'll see submission or not. It's easy to do what you want when everything's going your way. Paul puts it this way in one of his letters. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 22, Paul says, Slaves, and I think he's talking to the same group here, Slaves, in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service, as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than as for men. Now, this is a challenging principle all by itself. Because some of you may have been saying to yourself, okay, I hear what he's saying, I get the point. When I go to my job Monday, that, that stupid so-and-so that I have to work for, fine. I'll grip my teeth, I'll shut my mouth, and I'll go through the day, and I'll submit, or at least he won't know what I'm really thinking. That's not what Paul's asking for in the letter I just read out of Colossians. That's certainly not what Peter's asking for either. What he's asking for is that you find a way in your heart to submit to that individual as if you were submitting to, to, to the Lord himself, do all things as to, uh, to the Lord. And in that he means also your attitude. You serve the Lord in joy as a privilege of having the opportunity to serve him. Can you actually, can I actually put that mindset in our mind and in our hearts as we serve somebody who's treating us poorly? Until we can, we get no credit. You notice in the verses I already read, Peter talks in terms of credit. He's talking here in terms of eternal reward. He's talking in terms of what God credits to our heavenly account for the sake of rewarding us for our good service in faith. And if we do things in the nature that Paul alludes to here, out of a, basically out of a reluctant, begrudging way, then it gains us nothing. You might as well not do it. You're not, you're not serving yourself any benefit in that. It has to be a heart-driven desire to serve with the right motive. So if we expect God to give us some kind of heavenly credit, we've got to be ready to suffer under unjust circumstances. When we suffer for our own sin, Peter says, we get no credit. And serving a man or a woman with a heart of hatred toward them is sin. And as such, you will have no benefit. I want you to think about your witness for a moment as an ambassador or as a foreigner keeping with this theme that Peter's been on here for a minute. When you work under harsh conditions, and yet do so as an obedient servant, I want you to think about what kind of witness that provides. If the world around you, I mean, if you work in a team, which I do, and the team had the occasion to be working for a bad boss, which thankfully I don't, if I were the only member of that team who yielded and submitted in a joyful, heartfelt way, in an honest way, without any malice, without any ill intent... What kind of witness do I have in that moment compared to those around me or to those around me? Won't I have a dramatic witness? Won't the ambassador nature of my witness be evident? Who are you and where are you from? Why are you acting this way to that idiot while the rest of us are ready to, to take him out behind the building and, and kick him if we could? You see my point, right? That's Peter's point. Peter's point is, you want to be an ambassador? You want to stand out in this world? You want to be a foreigner? Then don't do what the world in their fleshly evil heart wants to do. Do instead what the Lord would do, for you are his ambassador. And then watch the effect that has on those around you. I want you to move on to the next one, because although I could talk about servants all day long, I think most of us in here are anxiously awaiting the next two. Because for the most part, even among those in here who are not yet married, there's an appreciation or an expectation that one day you might be or will be. And in that role, you've probably imagined certain ways about how marriage works and about how a husband does his job or a wife does their job. And that's probably based in part on what you've seen modeled around you. Well, 
no, my family is no different than yours. The model is probably faulty at various points along the way. Scripture, on the other hand, gives us the proper view. So let's, let's go to what Scripture gives us now as a guide for how we act in submission in these two roles. And of course, Peter himself begins with wives. So let's look at that. Chapter 1, or chapter 3, rather, verse 1. Peter says, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they obey, or rather, as they observe, your chaste and respectful behavior. Let's end there for just a moment. I love the way Peter starts. Likewise, the word here in my translation was in the same way, but the word in the Greek literally means likewise. So before we even look at the specifics here of what he just told women and what he's about to tell wives in the, in the verses yet to come, I want you to understand that he says the principle remains the same. Whatever the principle was for servants is still the same principle being applied here to wives. There are not different rules. In fact, I want you to look at verse 7 for just a moment where we're going to go before the day's over, looking at husbands. Look at how verse 7 begins. It begins with that word, homeosis, which is the Greek word for likewise. Exactly the same word again. So, servants, wives, husbands, the same principle applies. We don't have different rules for different people. We don't have rules for different walks of life or for different roles in the marriage. The rules are the same. All Peter is about to do in the course of these verses is apply those principles to each of these unique roles. And then in the context of these different roles, you're going to see some different instruction. Not because the principle is different, just because the role is different. Just because of the context. But I don't want anyone to leave this room today thinking that somehow God has put in place different expectations on one group or another. The expectations are the same. For the wife, the expectation is, be submissive to your husband. The term for submission here in the Greek is it's actually a military term. Hupotasso. It, it just means, as in a military sense, someone who respectfully comes under the authority of another for the sake of creating a cohesive team. In the military, if you've ever been in the military, I was a captain in the Air Force for nine years. And I'll tell you that in the Air Force, like any branch of the military, the effectiveness of a unit is completely dependent on or completely related to how well that group observes and carries out the orders of authority. If there is any breakdown in authority, if there's any disrespect, if there's any insubordination, then the ability of that unit to do anything of value completely disappears. It just dissolves into a mess, into factions or into fighting of one kind or another, or it's just neutralized, it's just ineffective. That's the sense of submission we're talking about here. I think it's helpful here, before we go any further, to review the biblical basis for this command. Because in our world today, there's probably not, more, there's probably not many other places I could go in the Bible to cause a stir in the modern culture we live in than to go to verses that talk about submission to authority, particularly in the context of marriage. So before we go into what Peter says, how about we take just a moment and go just briefly through some scripture that will help us understand the basis for why he would say this. The basis for the man's headship in the family, in the course of a marriage, was established in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. As God pronounced curse on the earth and on the enemy, he also pronounced a change in the relationship between man and woman. A change from what had existed prior to the fall. In the fall, he, after the fall, he gave man, he gave Adam, responsibility for spiritual leadership in the family. You'll see that as he talks to the woman, specifically, and he gives the woman first a desire for her husband. And by, de by desire, by the way, he means desire. He strengthened the marriage bond by putting in the woman a strong, 
instinctive desire to be wedded to her husband and to be a strong, loyal mate to her husband. There have been times I've heard in the past when people take that verse and twist it in a bizarre way and make it say that the woman somehow has a desire to rule over her husband. That's not in the verse. Those words aren't in the verse. It's not in the context of the verse. It's, more, it's just simply what it says. That in light of what the family was going to experience in generations to come, all the way through the millennia of time that follows even to today, this family was going to be under attack by the very enemy that put them out of the garden. And the strength of that family was going to be an inhibitor to the enemy. And to make the family strong, God said to the woman, you're going to desire your husband. You're going to be loyal and you're going to be committed to this marriage. If you know in family relationships or personal relationships today, it's often the case that women will cling to a relationship long after the man has given up. Long after he's run off and people are telling the woman, you know what, dump him, he's a loser. What are you doing? I just can't help it. I just feel for him. I want to be there for him. My personal belief is that's a reflection in part of what God has done to women in the garden, and that is try to produce a strong relationship between man and woman. But since Adam was AWOL in the garden, at the moment when the enemy took that attack on the family, God now says to man, you're going to take the headship in the home. But I want you to understand what he was doing when he did that. What he was doing was he was saying, I'm going to take you, Adam, and I'm going to put you on the front lines of this battle with the enemy. You're going to stand at the head, in front, protecting the family. And I'm taking your, your wife, the woman I gave you, who you abandoned in the moment of need, and I'm going to put her in the protected rear ranks of the family battle unit. And I'm going to give her a strong desire to support and to be there with you and to, and to be that helper I want her to be and to love you through everything. Because it's important that this unit be cohesive. But let me ask you, if you were walking into battle as a unit, marching into the face of the enemy, would you rather be in the front line or the back? I'm not, I'm not proud. I'd rather be in the back. I mean, frankly, why would you want to put yourself on the front lines of a battle? What God said to man was, that's now where you will be. That is now a burden. That is now a responsibility that the man now takes in the context of a family, in the context of his home. And in contrast, the woman was going to be in the rear ranks, no longer called upon to defend the family in skirmishes with Satan, but to support the family from that protected rear rank. Now, are we saying that woman is in an inferior position in some sense? In the Christian experience, is this to imply that women somehow have some inferior position before Christ? No. And Paul clears that up very carefully in one of his letters in Galatians chapter 3. He says this, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He's saying spiritually, God does not see gender. When God looks upon his creation and upon you and I, he is not looking upon the body of Christ with any distinctions in his view. We are all equal before Christ. We all have equal access to the throne. We all have equal access to Christ as our intercessor. We are not at any deficit. No one has to go through another man to get to Christ. Not a woman through her husband. Not anyone through anyone. Spiritually, we all have equal access. We are all one in the body of Christ. However, physically, while we still have this physical form today, we must exist in a specific form and with specific roles associated with, those, with that specific form. We have certain obligations. We have certain expectations that are built into Scripture. For a wife, the expectation is that she would submit to her husband's authority. I want you to consider Christ as an example here. He says in John chapter 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. 
And we know from that verse and other verses that Christ is co-equal with the Father, co-eternal with the Father. He was not created by the Father. He was there in the beginning with the Father. They are one God and in three parts, which is the mystery of the Trinity. We also know He says, I came to do the Father's will. I can only do what the Father gives me to do. I can only know what He tells me to know. There's a clear relationship in their function that puts the Father in the position of determining what the Son will do and the Son in a position of submitting to the Father's authority. So here we have in the Trinity itself an example of how God can be co-equal, co-eternal, and yet for the purpose of some outcome, of some mission, take roles, take positions that put one in submission to the other. And in that role of being submitted, Christ is not less God. He didn't for a moment step down from the throne. All he did was assume a function and a role that was to the purpose God had intended. The family's no different. Women and men, wives and husbands, we are co-equal before God in faith, in Christ. But yet, he comes to us in the form of the Word, and he says, I have a role and a function for the family in this world, and in order for that function to be, to be carried out properly, in the face of this attack from the enemy that you're going to have to contend with, I have assigned roles and responsibilities to make it an effective family unit. And that effective unit puts the man in the front ranks, the woman in a protected rear position relative to the enemy. And working together, they will have the effect I want them to have. They will be a successful family. And your example in that is Christ. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. He says, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. And the man is the head of a woman. He's talking here in the context of marriage. And God is the head of Christ. What a strange statement if you don't understand this principle, right? God is the head of Christ? I thought they were the same God. They are, but in function and in form, they've taken these roles. Now, I want you to look at the benefit that Peter says will be derived from this wife's obedience. Why do this? Why bother? He says, if your husband is disobedient to God's word, then the wife may have an opportunity to win him over by her godly behavior. Notice, won over not by a word, but by a deed. That in the context of a marriage where the husband is doing the wrong thing, is disobedient to the word, and I think this is applicable in two ways. On the one hand, it could mean a husband who doesn't know the Lord, who's disobedient to the word in the sense that he doesn't believe the gospel. Secondly, it could also be in the context of a godly man who is not listening to the word in his daily walk and is disobeying the word in one way or another. That is also, I think, implied here. Wives in this room, future wives, if you have a husband who is either not a believer or you are concerned about things and actions and decisions he's making in his life and you've wanted that solution, you just got it. But it's not the one the world offers. The one that the Bible just offered us here is that the woman would submit to his authority even when he's doing the wrong thing. Remember the servant earlier? We submitted to our employer because he did the right thing or the wrong thing? Neither. We submit to him because he's our employer. What was the result if we suffer under unjust treatment? Back in those verses, we find favor both with God and with men. Now, why does a wife submit to her husband? Again, when he does the right thing? No. When he is in the position of her husband. And in fact, when he's doing the wrong thing, I think that's especially important for a woman to submit because it's going to be only in those moments when there is conflict and then yet the woman says, fine, I don't agree, 
And by the way, you're very, very appropriate for a woman to express her position. The wife is not silent. The wife is an equal partner in the decision. But if there's a conflict and the decision cannot be reconciled uh, uh, amicably, then the only thing the Bible gives us an opportunity to say is, the woman would say something to the effect of, you're doing the wrong thing. I've told you what I think. You're not willing to listen to me. But I'm going to submit. Do what you think is best. And I'm behind you. Do you secretly harbor in your heart? And I hope it fails, because I really want you to look at yourself when this is over and realize how much more I knew than you did, right? If that's in the heart, then you're back to the problem we discussed in the servant case. Remember, the same principles apply. We're not giving different principles here. We're just giving a different context. The principle is serving the Lord. The way I would put it is, you're not trusting in the husband. You're trusting in God. Because it is with God you will find favor for having been obedient in the role he has given you. Look what Peter goes on to say in chapter 3, verse 3. He says, Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Sometimes those verses are misused. I'll mention this just up front because I want to put it aside. Some people look at those verses and try to turn them into a legalistic expectation that women would never adorn themselves at all. The verses don't say that. Peter's making an analogy. He's not teaching a principle on how women are to dress or to wear their hair or do any of those sorts of things. He's not saying you cannot be externally adorned. He's saying if that's all you've got, you're in trouble. If that's the extent of your beauty as a woman is simply, I can make myself look good on the outside, that's not lasting, it's not eternal, and God knows better. What he's saying is, by comparison, just as much as you want to look nice on the outside, want to look nice, as it were, on the inside. Want to be the kind of person who, in the hidden person of their heart, Peter says, they have this imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, how do you become gentle and quiet in the face of a husband who's doing all the wrong things and not listening to your counsel? The kind of husband that, for the most part, every man is at least sometime. Sooner or later. A bad day, a bad month, a bad year, maybe a bad marriage. How do you deal with that as a woman? How would you go into that kind of a situation? Well, he gives an example of a woman faced with a husband who was doing the wrong thing and yet submitted nonetheless. And in that gave all women an example. Look at where he goes in chapter 3, verse 5. He says, For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Do you remember the story of Abraham and Sarai? And in fact, at the, at the point that Peter is referring to here, it was actually Abram and Sarai in chapter 12 of Genesis. Let me recap a little of it. I want to read you some verses out of Genesis because if there's ever a more encouraging story to women and to wives, I don't know it. In chapter 12, Abram flees Egypt with Sarai because of a famine. A famine had come on the land, and because of that famine, he felt he wasn't going to be able to survive in the land that God had shown him. So he takes it upon himself, not by God's direction, to leave the the land of Canaan and to travel south into Egypt. Egypt was always a safe haven during times of famine because they had the Nile, so they always had water. Genesis chapter 12, verse 10 is where I'm going to pick up. Listen to this story. Now, there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. It came about that when he came near to Egypt, that he said to Sarai, his wife, See now, I know that you are a beautiful woman, a woman, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife, 
and they will kill me, but they will let you live. All right, I want you to understand what, this is, what he's doing here. This is the guy who's the father of faith, okay? This is the guy that, you know, all of, of, of Israel revered for his faithfulness, and, and for good reason, but I want you to see how imperfect he is despite that. He's worried about this principle that, that you would find in many Eastern cultures, and Egypt was an example of that. The, the pharaoh, the king, had a harem of wives, and he felt liberty to add to that harem at any point when he wanted to. But they, most Eastern cultures then, and it's still true today, they abhor adultery. They're very, very adamant about never committing adultery. So if he had found that Sarai was beautiful and he wanted her to be his wife, and he had come upon them, or one of his agents had come upon them, and then realized she was married, well, they weren't going to be able to take her into the harem as a married woman. So they would kill Abram. Now, there's the irony, right? They hate adultery, but they're okay with murder. That's the honest truth. So they would have killed Abram, and then all of a sudden, hey, she's available, let's take her. So, so here's what brave, you know, wonderful Abram does. He turns to his wife and he says, I realize this is possible, so this is what I want, this is our plan, sweetheart. Our plan is, you're going to say you're my sister. Now that's a half-truth, because he was, that was, Sarai was his half-sister, but it was still a lie, because it, it negated the fact that he was also married to her. So he says, this is the plan, you say that you are my sister. Now, how does that fix the problem? What it does is it alleviates the need for him to be killed and makes it that much easier for the Egyptians to take her and make her Pharaoh's wife. So, is Sarai an idiot? I'm guessing not. So I'm guessing she's listening to this thinking, okay, I see how this helps you, but what's in it for me again? How does this work in the end? Where's, you know, I'm missing a piece of the plan here, Abram. And he says in verse 13, he says, Please say that you are my sister so that it may go well with me. You notice the me here a lot? And I, he goes on to say, because of you, and that I may live on account of you. A lot of I's and me's in this, right? Why, women, do you live with a husband that has a lot of I's and me's in his language and in his thought and his actions? My wife does at times, and that's, a, that's something we all want to do better, right? Here's a man who we would look to in Scripture as the pinnacle of faith, as a man that we could all look up to and live by, and yet look what he's doing here. Look what he's doing here. Now, what do you do? You're Sarai, as, a, as an example. What do you do? I would assume that maybe you protest. Although the scripture doesn't give us, as I'll show here in a minute, it doesn't give us any indication that she ever protested. But maybe she did. But if it were you, I'm betting you're going to do more than protest. I'm betting you're going to look at the man, you're going to say, you're off your rocker. This is nuts. What are you doing? Whose husband are you? Because you're not treating me like a wife. I'm not going to go through with this. You're crazy. Why don't we just stay where we are? Because if we're going to go down there and that's the result, what's the point? You can see the conversation going on and on and on, right? What does she do? In verse 14, It came about that when Abram came into Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Therefore, he treated Abraham well for the sake of her. He gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. So he got paid for her. Pretty nicely. So Abram's sitting there with all this wealth while Sarai is now in the harem of the Egyptian pharaoh. And then later, in verse 19, the pharaoh finds out that she is not actually just his sister. Somehow, through some agency we don't know, he learned that this was actually Abram's wife. So the pharaoh goes back to Abram. In verse 19, he says, Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. 
Pharaoh commanded his men concerning her, and they escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, he and his wife and all that belonged to him, and Lot with him. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. Now I mentioned that last verse for just one small reason. Abraham did the wrong thing. Abram, as we know him at this point, did the wrong thing. And he did the wrong thing repeatedly. And yet we don't see any evidence that Sarai objected. And whether she did or not, she certainly went along with it in the end. And did she obey because she trusted that somehow this cockamamie plan was going to work out in the end? I think she knew exactly what was coming. And she still went forward with it. And she did it not because she obeyed Abram per se. Yes, she submitted to his authority. But I'm trusting in you, God, not in Abram. Where do you think her low point was? When she's sitting in the harem, wondering what night that the Pharaoh might call on her to have to come and and sleep with him? Which as Scripture reveals, thankfully never happened. God protecting her. You know, where in there did she finally say, you know what, maybe I was wrong to obey that loser. You know, maybe I should have done the right thing and just said, you're off, you know, forget it, Abram. But God was faithful, wasn't He? And then in the end, He actually restores them, not only in person, but also in wealth. Now, I don't want to imply here that because you obey, you're going to be rich. That's a false message. But I do, I do want to show you what God is capable of doing in the case of Abram and Sarai as an example of what he is prepared, per, perhaps, to do for those who obey him and are, are given over to him in submission. If a woman wants to make a radical statement in the world today for Christ as an ambassador, if you want to make a radical statement as a woman, that if you simply sit down with a group of women friends and tell them how you believe you are to be submitted to your husband's authority. Try doing that in today's culture and watch what kind of witness you produce in that. Watch the kind of conversation that ensues. Watch their eyes go like this. That's the comparable situation to the servant who would obey that bad master. The wife who would say, I know he does the wrong thing. Shoot, most of the time he doesn't have a clue what he's doing. But I'm obeying him because that's my service to God. As a submissive wife, I'm serving God, not my husband. And when I serve God, he finds favor in that, as the scripture has told me. Well, lest we be too one-sided, let's talk about the husbands as we conclude. Now, Peter gives one verse to the husbands, after having given all those verses to the women. Let's read it first, and then I want to comment on that. Verse 7, he says, You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman. And show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Now, it seems odd to you and I that he would give one verse to a man, to the husband here, after giving so much attention to both servants, for that matter, and to the wives, right? Now, in our culture, here's how you're likely to interpret that fact. In our culture today, we're likely to look at that as a sign that men, in Paul, in Peter's view and in God's view, have somehow a le- less reason to submit, less need to submit. That, that in comparison to slaves and to women, you know, they need some real teaching on submission. Men, okay, yeah, submit a little bit. That's how we are likely to interpret the fact that there's such a difference in the number of verses. But that's because we're thinking from a Western point of view. If you and I were to think from an Eastern point of view, by Eastern I mean the culture in which this was written, to the audience to whom it was written, do you realize they would be thinking completely opposite of what you just thought? They would have looked at this list and they would have been stunned, absolutely aghast, to find, first of all, men coming at the end of the list rather than at the beginning where they deserve to be, in their minds, right? Secondly, that men only get one line of instruction and the others get all those other lines of instruction. They would absolutely be offended that the men were put at the back of the line and with barely a mention. That's the Eastern point of view, and that's exactly what Peter is trying to communicate, frankly. 
That's exactly his intent here. He is trying to diminish men in comparison to the other groups. Again, not because they are somehow diminished with respect to our relationship with Christ, but because he wants them to, to recognize that what submission in the case of a man means is similar to the way submission is supposed to work in the church among leadership. That those who would lead are the servants of those who are in the body of Christ. That the one who is the least of you will be the greatest. That unless you're willing to wash the feet of others, you could not be my servant. Men have a comparable role in the family. And it's in that sense that he puts them at the end of the list. In verse 7, it's, it's translated, in my case, I think, and in probably most of your cases, a little bit awkwardly because it's somewhat difficult to translate. In fact, if you want a good idea of just how difficult it is, go pull four or five different versions of the Bible from friends or other places and look at how this verse is rendered. It's rendered very differently from verse to verse, from, from translation to translation. If you wanted to make the most literal translation, just take the Greek and make it an English word, transliterate it, in other words, it would be, husbands, likewise, dwell with them according to knowledge. According to knowledge. As you heard already, my verse, or my version, translated that to say, live with your wives with understanding. But I don't think that's what Peter's really getting at. I don't mean to say I know better than the translators, but I do want you to understand, I think what Peter's saying here is more or less exactly what I read when I gave you that literal version. Dwell with them according to knowledge. I think what Peter is saying here is he knows that the man has heard all that's been taught up to this point, just like the women have, just like the servants have. And in all that they've heard, they've heard this. They've heard, your wife is going to submit to your authority, not because you do the right thing, but because she's obeying God. And servants are going to submit to you. Remember, the men were the masters in the home. So servants are going to submit to you, men, as the master, not because you deserve it, but because they're honoring their Lord. And even when you're doing all the wrong things and they're submitting to you, don't get the picture that somehow that submission makes you feel, oh, like I know what's going on. I got my act together. Look how many people want to submit to me. No, act according to knowledge. And what he's referring to here, I think, is the knowledge of God's expectation of what a master or what a husband should do in honoring those who submit to their authority for the sake of the Lord. Remember Peter's comments earlier in this very letter? In chapter 1, when he spoke to the church and he said this in chapter 1, verse 14, he said, As obedient children, do not be conformed to your former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance. I think he's saying the same thing here, only in the opposite. Where before he said, look, don't do the things you used to do when you didn't know better. Now he's saying, do what you know you should do now that you know better. And now that you understand the principles behind these actions. You're no longer ignorant. You now have knowledge. Look at his words in verse 7 specifically. He says, number one, live with her as a weaker vessel. The term there for weaker is a common Greek word. And again, I think it's misapplied here to some extent. The word is poieo, poieo. And what it literally means is to do. It's one of the most common verbs in the New Testament. And it's almost always translated to do or to make or to keep or to establish. This is the only time in the entire Bible it's translated weaker. And I understand why the translators felt that that might have been the usage. But again, I say I don't think that's what it was intending to mean as Paul wrote it. I don't think he's, or Peter wrote it. I don't think he's trying to suggest here that women are weaker. I mean, we know physically that's true, but so what? That doesn't, that doesn't mean anything. The fact that you're stronger than a woman as a man, whatever, who cares? How does that have any spiritual significance? It doesn't. What I think he's saying here is, considering, and, and considering how the whole verse goes, I would translate it this way. Live with your wife according to knowledge, to keep her, to establish her, to honor her, poyeo. 
which is due to the fact that she has this vulnerable position in the relationship. Not vulnerable because of who she is physically. No, he says, look, it's no different than when you're at work. Are you vulnerable as a worker when you have a boss? Absolutely you're vulnerable. You have to do what they say. You have to listen to their orders and instructions. You're vulnerable. So if the master understands his people under him are vulnerable, he needs to operate with an understanding that I've got to take good care of these people who are vulnerable under my care. Similarly, a wife is not the weaker vessel, I would argue, spiritually in the sense of this verse. Rather, she is the one who is vulnerable to a husband who plays the role of master or, in the case of a wife, of a leader in the family. And therefore, he needs to keep her, establish her, to do with her what Christ did to the church, right? In Ephesians chapter 5, he honored the church by giving his life to the church. Similarly, husbands, honor your wives. That's the sense of what he's saying here. For a husband who might decide in his own marriage to abuse his authority, to take advantage of his wife's submissiveness, remember, one day, you and I, men and women, we will all inhabit the same eternity, absent gender. We won't be like men and women marrying and giving into marriage. We will be like the angels, we're told. So gender will disappear. We will simply be equals in Christ in that new world. Think about what it will be like when you walk into that new age, that new time, and you find yourself face-to-face with your former spouse, And in the case of a man, a woman who you abused, who you pushed down because you had authority and she was willing to submit. Now that that distinction is no longer necessary and God has raised us all to a common experience, what kind of memory and example will you bring into that moment if you look back on your life and that's how you've lived? What a shame that will be. What a shame that would be. A man who isn't honoring to his wife, we're told at the very end there, will find his prayers hindered. We'll end on this, but I want to make clear what that's referring to. On the one hand, it's obvious enough that if there's strife in the marriage, it's going to be difficult to find opportunity for good, quiet, meaningful prayer. That, I don't think, takes a leap of understanding to appreciate. But I don't think you can fully appreciate this verse unless you as a couple have a habit in your life that was common in the day Peter wrote this letter. And that habit would have been praying together. In Peter's day, for the most part, prayer was a corporate event. There was private time, yes. There was prayer in the prayer closet, but there was certainly a a corporate family time for prayer as well. And I don't know if that's as common today as it was then. I don't think it is. But if you don't have a pattern in your family, in your marriage right now, where the husband and the wife find time together to pray as a couple, then you can't understand this verse fully. But if you do live like that, then you know exactly what it means to have strife in the marriage, to have a woman not submitting or a husband treating her wife uh, improperly. And then, oh honey, it's 9 o'clock time for our prayer time. Yeah, right. If you do it, it'll be superficial. If you don't do it, which is more often the case, then you lose the opportunity. Your prayers are hindered. I think that's implicit in what Peter's saying. That if you want a healthy marriage prayer life, then the two roles have to be lived according to Scripture. Because there will be angst, there will be conflict otherwise. You know, it's hard sometimes to hear what's in your head. Did I hear what he said right? Did I get that right? Where you go is to Scripture. I want you to meditate if you're having any struggle about the roles that Christ has given through His Word in chapter 2 of Peter. Spend some time, or in chapter 3, spend some time looking at those verses on your own and considering what is my greatest witness as an ambassador of Christ? Is it to live out as the world would have me live out at work or in my family? Or is it to live as God would have me live? But it feels so different. It feels so foreign. Yeah. Exactly. It's not what the world would expect. My last challenge as we close in prayer is to men. Men, as the spiritual leader in the home, you cannot expect 
that the family's spiritual development will come because you have a godly wife. That's a wonderful asset and a necessary asset, but it starts with the man. If as a family you want prayer time, then you have to initiate prayer time as a family. If as a family you want to see your children and your wife engaged in more Bible study, you need to initiate that in your family. As a family, if you want to be out witnessing in some overt way that's not currently going on, you've got to take that first step. They may do it without you, but shame on you if they do. That is the expectation the Bible puts on every man, married or otherwise. And we'll all do better to live out that expectation. Let me close in prayer as we end today. Dear Father, we pray for courage and initiative. Father, you tell us in your word, love takes the initiative. And I pray our love would give us the desire to go into our families and our workplaces with what we've learned today and take the initiative to be submitted, quiet in spirit, loving and intent, and in all things obedient to your word. Father, I pray we would be that kind of ambassador in those places. And Father, we will have fear, we will have doubt. I know there will be times, Father, when our submission will seem like the hardest thing in the world. And it may very well be. But Father, we know that when we obey, we find favor with you. And that our eternal account is credited. Let that be something, Father, that overcomes the fear, overcomes the doubt. Thank you, Father, for the word, for its instruction and its encouragement. Let us go out from here, Father, willing to live it out. And if it be your will, we would hope to return next week and continue. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.